Welcome back to Two Mamas and a Mustard Seed. On this episode, Parenting on Point, Adoption, and Identity, we'll be discussing transracial adoption with two guests, Amanda McMonigle and Morgan Rumble. I am one of your hosts, Renee Rethel. And I am your other host, Kisa Hokey. Morgan Rumple serves as the statewide Sexual Assault Response Team Coordinator for the Indiana Coalition to End Sexual Assault and Human Trafficking Incorporated. She is a survivor of sexual assault and interpersonal violence and has worked to end systemic racism and bring true pathways to justice for survivors of sexual violence. She is also an adoptee. Amanda McMonigle is an adoptive mama, a racial reconciler, and a Louisville leader of Be the Bridge to Racial Unity. Be the Bridge exists to empower people and culture toward racial healing, equity, and reconciliation. We are super excited to have both ladies join us on this episode. Let's get going. We are a faith-based podcast that believes in sharing true stories about race and relationships in America. All of our family stories are different. Some of us entered our families through birth. Some of us entered our families through adoption. We all bring something valuable to the conversation. Our goal for this episode and every episode is to teach us how to love like Christ, to learn how to be instruments of unity in our everyday lives. Welcome ladies, thanks for coming. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so I wanted to start us off by sharing um, a study that I found from 2017. The Institute of Family Studies found that transracial adoption has increased by 50% over the last decade. For our listeners who don't know, transracial adoption simply means parents adopting a child of a different race. Whether you have adopted yourself know someone who is adopted or just are one of our loyal listeners, we really hope you'll stick around for this conversation. There's a lot to learn, a lot to glean, no matter where you're at in this um, this topic. This conversation, for me personally, would have been a great resource for me and my husband when we were in the adoption process. I didn't know then that I needed more and more of this information to help me be a good mama. If there was Another, just one thing that parents need to make sure that they're very intentional about while raising a child of a different race, what would that be? If just one thing that comes to top of mind, I know it's difficult, but uh, something that they need to be extremely intentional about. So you can, you can start off Morgan. Um, I think you have to be very intentional about incorporating culture into, um, and celebrating culture, I'll say it that mm-hmm. way, celebrating culture of that adoptee. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that that's something I really, for growing up, my, mostly when I got older, my, my moms would tell me, Morgan, I'm so sorry that we didn't incorporate your culture more into your, you being raised. Mm-hmm. And um, it's definitely not, it wasn't something I was like, oh, no, you did. It's fine. No, <laughs> we, we didn't. Um, and so I think that that is something to be intentional about. And and I think the celebrating culture is important Yeah. Um, because I, I do think that there's a lot within kind of the transracial adopting process that can kind of uh, start, almost make it feel like you're not celebrating one's culture, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're taking a child away in, quote unquote, taking a child away. And sometimes if you're not incorporating that culture, that child may say, 
what does that say about the, the place I came from? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so just knowing that those subtle messages can be really important yeah. um, and heard by us. I know it could seem overwhelming to some parents You have to incorporate a different culture into their culture at mm-hmm. first. Um, but like I had to tell you, I, I'd be really sad if we didn't incorporate our boys' Ethiopian culture into mm-hmm. our lives in some way. You know, as an adoptive mom of Ethiopian boys, I love Ethiopian culture. Like, it's just so cool because mm. it's part of who they are, yeah. you know, just everything from the food to the music to, you know, the traditional dress, just, you know, and there's things that you can do. You can watch videos, if you, especially if you're international adoption, mm-hmm. right? You can get online, you can watch a video or you can go to your local restaurant or you can celebrate the holidays that they um, celebrate in Ethiopia that we might not hear. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I love that. I love that. That's what you said, Morgan. Thank you. But you know, what I hear from you, Renee, is that you value that culture. And so I think that as an adoptive parent, we have to value the culture and we have to value um, the people that have the same culture and ethnicity as our children. So so that's why, you know, you want to do that is because you see the value. You Mm. see the value. Yeah. That's a good word. That's good. That's a good word. So listen, as a white girl, I didn't even know my own hair was curly until I was in college. I walked around for years with a big giant ball of frizz on top of my head. No kidding. So let's just say taking care of my own boy's hair continues to be a challenge. I was thankful to hear Morgan and Kisa talk about hair care. So, Miss Morgan, (laughs) so there's one thing that I know it can be a challenge for, even though I'm, I'm not an adoptive parent and I've not been through that experience, but I do know that hair care can be a challenge or an issue with folks. <laughs> Hold on, Rosie. Hold on. Uh, let me just tell you why she's saying that. It's because she's friends with me. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't know what I'm doing with my I, own hair. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking from experience in that, you know, I've seen, I've seen kiddos out and I'm, I know their parents have the best of intentions, you know, for their, their, their kids, but you know, the hair is like, oh my gosh, you know, let someone help you. So uh, with that said was learning to care for your hair uh, an issue or a challenge growing up. I mean, there's, there's so many resources right now. I don't know how old you are, but like if you go on YouTube right now, which we'll, we'll put this info in the show notes, but you go to YouTube and there's, you know, transracial adoptive parents that are doing hair care. There's other tips specifically for, you know, black hair. So was that a challenge for you? Girl. <laughs> um, I saw this question. I was really excited about it because it doesn't get asked a whole lot. And this was mm. a very telling thing for my, for my growing up. Um, I, my mom, she used to, we spent eight hours braiding my hair. Uh, and we would watch Lion King over and over and over again. And that would be the only time that my hair would be like, looking okay Mm. Uh, when my hair wasn't in braids it was like one big mat and I was always Mm. embarrassed and I never knew what to do Mm. and I was using like the same products that my parents were using Mm. which is not really on my hair but I didn't know that and so I and I didn't really I didn't know that 
honestly that there was anything uh, different about my hair. I just thought I didn't know what to do. Um, And so I, it wasn't until I was about 14 years old, my parents actually did take me to a black barber shop and that was the first time ever. And I will never forget the lady looking at them and being like, Mm. I mean, she could just shake her head. <laughs> she just shake her head. Mm. She had my hair. And that was just an experience I won't forget. Yeah. And um, it, it wasn't until then where someone actually started talking to me about my hair mm-hmm. and teaching me technique that I still use today back from when I was four fourteen. Um, that I actually started, my hair started changing and being healthy. My hair was not healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, I was doing um, a lot of relaxers and... Mm. But I wasn't back to like that celebration of value. There was never discussion about like uh, natural hair mm-hmm. and be my natural hair. Um, it was either we braid it, don't do anything, or we'll get straightened. Yes. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, we didn't have, um, I don't know if there were so many resources back then. I grew up in the 90s. But if there were, we were not really using them. I think it's very critical and very important that. Um, that is something that people consider because now that I'm more incorporated into my black culture, mm-hmm. there is, I mean, so important. it's like, I, yeah. And yes. I, I, probably, I actually, my husband took down my braids last night because I'm going back tomorrow to get it. So like hair is like a big thing in my life now and right. it never was before. Right. Um, but I'm more connected to it and not like I have to do something, but I, it, it's just part of me now, whereas I was so embarrassed growing up. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a part of our identity, right? It's our yeah. crown. Mm-hmm. It's it's extremely yeah. important. So, mm-hmm. no, thank mm-hmm. you for speaking to that. Yeah, yeah. thanks for asking that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's good. As parents, none of us get it right, so we thought it was important to talk to both Amanda and Morgan about some things that they wish they would have done differently or in Morgan's case that her parents would have done differently. You would change if any about those initial stages Mm. parenting your kiddos. Mm. That was a bonus question. Um, Oh, is that a bonus question? We didn't tell them about that question. About the initial years? Mm -hmm. You know, it would be to be that I would have been more aware sooner. Um, mm. I, my middle son, who's seven, it was probably when he was like two, two and a half, three, before I really started to become aware that there was a lot of things that I didn't know that I didn't know. Mm. And when I started to learn about the black experience um, in our country and to educate myself. Um, and. He was probably more like three and a half, four when we really started to make connections within the black community. Mm -hmm. So now my younger son, that's all he's ever known. Mm -hmm. And I see a difference. You know, I already see my four-year-old, the things, um, how he's connected at that age to to the black community, Mm -hmm. whereas my older one wasn't at that age. So it would would just be that I would have started my education sooner. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's good. And Morgan, what would you change, if anything, about how your parents raised you? There might be a whole long list. <laughs> Even for biological <laughs> yeah. parents and kids. Okay. Um, and I don't mean to hard me talk about this. Thanks for sitting through it again. Um, so that like incorporation, and I, I mean, I really like what you said, value. I think that, that mm-hmm. like, takes it almost a step further mm-hmm. than incorporation and celebrating that value. Um, 
you know, I, I've talked, I've talked before on other podcasts and stuff that, that we didn't talk about race, um, growing up and it was, it was something that just was not connected in conversations that we would have. It wasn't until I was about nine years old, um, that my niece came up to me and said, Hey Morgan, why are you a different color than Grand Salini? Mm. And those were my parents. And that was the first time I had even noticed that. I didn't, I, it, I, that was the first time it even registered in my head that I was a different color than somebody else. Um, and I started, it, it started becoming something I would think about a little bit more, but it was never something that we talked about more. Um, when I was a little bit older in Harrison County, that's where I grew up, they had the KKK rally. And I remember my parents sitting me down and being like, you know, we're not going to go out. It's dangerous. There's a group called the KKK. Um, and we just can't go out. But again, like race was not brought into that conversation. It was wow. just, there's this group and it's dangerous. Wow. Um, and, and, and so we, we didn't go out. And then, you know, when I was going through high school, I started experiencing a lot more. Well, I started noticing a lot more racism, um, especially in my high school and then things that people would say. What really hit me hard about this next conversation with Morgan is that she had no idea what to do with this concept of race as a child. Some of it's heartbreaking to hear, but necessary to hear. Take a listen and hear what she has to say. And, um, but I, I honestly, I didn't know what to do with that. Like I didn't know what to do with the stuff that I was experiencing. It hurt, but I didn't process it um, as an experienced really tied to race and, and what do you, how do you handle that? Um, I didn't go talk to my parents about it. And much later on in life, um, where we are now, and you know, I, I, we might talk about this later, but I don't have a very good or any relationship with a lot of my white family. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that has to do with racism. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. the last like technically four years, but nearly six months, it's, it's come up a little bit more. Um, but I do remember back when I was about 19, I, I finally sat down and said, can we please talk about with my parents? Can we please talk about some race? Like, I, I think we need to talk about some of the stuff that I've experienced, et cetera. Morgan was born in Kentucky and adopted by her parents as an infant. Her adoptive parents lived in Indiana. Listen to what Morgan says became a sticking point in the legal process of her adoption. And they were like, no, Morgan, actually, the Indiana social worker said they didn't want any more black kids in Indiana. And wow. there's a big story with that, too, and the experiences I had when I was very young that makes sense and clicked. But I also realized at that moment that my parents were slightly aware, hmm. could be more aware, but they were definitely aware that race was, race was a thing mm-hmm. and that I was going to experience racism I already had. But we still never talked about it. Sure. And so um, I think that would, have, that would have been one of the biggest and most beneficial things what would be don't run away from it. Let's talk about and let's understand, you know, my experience as a black person is going to be different than yours. And how are you going to parent me yeah. um, or be a parent and support system in my life? Uh, so that's that's what I would say would, be, would have been very beneficial. <laughs> sure. Over the years of my parenting journey, I have become more and more convinced that it is mandatory for white parents to have black role models, black coaches, black church leaders, black teachers, and their black child's life. Representation absolutely matters. Did you have any black people around you growing up? 
No. Um, I, at least not that I can remember. My, I didn't have anybody in my family. There was one family in my school that we, we didn't really know each other or see each other. And, um, so no, there really wasn't anybody. We would come to Louisville often. But we would always go, and it would be around other white groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, there might have been maybe one black person there, but that wasn't like the, the center of the the group of the family. So, yeah. Did Did you hit a point? I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I jumped. I, this isn't on the script, so you don't have to answer it. Did you hit a point somewhere in your childhood, maybe middle school, high school, that you realized, wait a second, this is different? Like I'm, I'm black, they're mm-hmm. white, and there's a distinct difference. Like, you know what I'm saying? Was there a point where that just kind of hit you and you had to start walking through that as a kid? I would say it would probably have been when I got into my older teens. Okay. <clears throat> and I, I can share with you the particular experience. Um, one of my parents and I went to New Mexico, and we were in this, um, we were attending a basketball game, and it was a like a older female league basketball game. One of, my, one of our friends was playing in it. And so we went and the whole auditorium <clears throat> was white. I mean, really white, except for me. And I remember standing, sitting there with my mom, one of my moms, and this woman came from like across the other side of the um, auditorium, came over to me and said, hey, there's a mess over there. If you don't mind cleaning it up, and can you get more lights on in here? Wow. I I remember sitting there and being like, and I was dressed. I mean, I was I was actually dressed pretty nice. So like, I like to get dressed up. So I was dressed. <laughs> I was dressed pretty nice to go to a basketball game, and it just clicked with me. Like, it didn't matter. That mm-hmm. didn't matter. Yeah. She saw my black skin. She right. didn't even look at my mom. She didn't acknowledge my mom. She just saw me, a kid, and I'm a kid, you know, and. um that was like one of the first time, and again, we didn't really talk about it, but it really, that hit me really hard. Yeah. Harder than any of the other things that, you know, I, in high school, people would say, no one's going to vote for you for class president, you're black. Mm. Or um, we we had watched presidential elections and um, inaugurations like all the time during school, but when Obama got elected, that was like a no. Mm. And so like that stuff happened, and I, I heard it in my head, and I understood what was happening, but... That direct experience with my mom, um, that hit me really hard and something I'll probably never forget. Wow. What year did you graduate from high school, Morgan? (laughs) Is that okay? Don't you ask me that question, okay? I want to ask you. What year? 2009. 2009, okay. Because you you said Obama when he was inaugurated being in high school, so I wondered, wow, that wasn't that long ago. No, no. Parents everywhere, really listen and take note of this next conversation. Isn't it our goal every day to make sure our children feel loved and wanted? No matter if we have children who are biological or adopted, our children should never feel other. Uh, And I'm just going to stick with you just for a couple more more minutes here. And... uh, ask what made you feel I guess the most loved and least loved and you may have touched on it already with with some of the things with your parents not being intentional about talking about race I'm not sure but what made you feel maybe the most loved uh, growing up 
You can share least love if you want, if you're comfortable. But most love for sure. Most love. <clears throat> yeah, I'm, I'm kind of sad to say it's the harder one for me to answer. Wow. Um, I hate that, but that really is the harder one for me to answer. Mm. That's really difficult. I, I, a lot growing up, I felt like the other in my family. Mm. Um, and it was almost like obvious. I, I, cause I wanted to say like, I felt incorporated. It didn't ever make me feel like I was like an adopted kid, but I, I it was like Christmas, um, get togethers were so stressful because it just, it just, you felt like other, you know, like mm. all your siblings and nieces and nephews would get present and they'd get you one just so you felt uh, wow. that you were included. You know what I mean? Wow. And so, um, I would say, looking back in hindsight, the, the love that my my mom, Arlene, has for me is, is just incredibly powerful. Um, I would say that, and unfortunately, I don't have a strong relationship with that, her now, but my sister was probably one of the people I felt came to bat for me the most growing up. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> this is a bonus ding, ding, ding. Yeah, so <laughs> the bonus, round. bonus question. But I think it's I think it's important right now based mm-hmm. off of the things that you just spoke about. Yeah. So our question for you all is, are there are the challenges of being in a family with adoptive kiddos greater when there are also biological children in the family? Hmm. I mean, I think that it presents certainly unique challenges. Mm. Um, You know, our family doesn't know any different because, you know, we had our biological son um, first uh, before adopting. Um, I think some of those challenges can come from, for instance, my white son. Um, Let me give you an example. We were at a Pacers basketball game and a white woman turned around and grabbed my he was like five at that time, grabbed his legs and said, quit kicking my seat, mm. which he was not kicking her seat. And I said, you need to take your hands off my child. She didn't. She said it again, doubled down on it. And I said, you need to get your hands off my child. He's not kicking your seat. If You need to speak to me. Mm. And uh, when the situation uh, stopped, my biological son looked at me and he said, would you have done that for me? And I said, I don't have to do that for you. That's mm-hmm. not going to happen to you. I said, at that point, he was around 12 years old. I said, when in your life has something like that happened to you? I said, a white woman's not going to turn around and grab your legs, you know, mm-hmm. because you're white. She doesn't, she's not going to assume the right to your body in that mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Um, and so I think there is that comparison. I think um, one of the challenges for our family, we have definitely stepped out of um, the community that we have, and we have entered into the black community. And while that is absolutely a positive thing for our white son, um, and a, an amazing thing, um, you know, I, I think probably from his perspective, it's like, my goodness, they're they're doing X, Y, and Z, and doing all these things to, you know, for my younger two brothers. Yeah, You know, um, and so we always talk about how, um, yes, his black brothers is what has led us um, into changing community um, and those kind of things. But ultimately, what we've also realized, our black children is what made us go there. But it's a benefit for our whole family. Mm-hmm. 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 
Yeah, I would uh, just to piggyback off that. First of all, I just love hearing you speak because it just makes me feel like so happy and mm-hmm. like, gosh, good mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love to pat some of those. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you know, Morgan, why I um, have and why our family has done those things is listening to other adult adoptees like yourself. Because exactly what you share is what, when I listen to other adult adoptee stories, I hear them saying, I just wish I was connected with my community and my culture and, you know, X, Y, and Z. I wish these things. And so I just appreciate you sharing your experience so that myself and other adoptive parents can learn from you. You're you're the expert here. Yeah. (laughs) I would echo that. Yeah. 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 Well, I just, I do appreciate it. I just, it, it's good to hear. And I mean, I guess it's good to hear that someone is internalizing some of that experience that we have. So, um, I would say, yeah, just, you know, I kind of, kind of piggybacked off this earlier and mentioned it earlier, but I, my situation is a little unique because my, my youngest sister in age to me is 13 years older. Um, so my, my, my oldest brother, I'm 30, my oldest brother's in his fifties. So, I just to say, like the age also had an impact um, in addition to race in mm-hmm. this case. Um, but I, I definitely, in addition to being other, there's also a, another set of expectations on me mm-hmm. um, from both my parents and my. I feel like my parents had one expectation, and my other, the rest of my family um, had different expectations, and so. I feel like I did pretty good in high school, and I ended up going to college. And I remember my one of my brother's reactions to that, to me going to college, was that I was spoiled. Um, or in that I graduated college, I was spoiled. And I went to Hanover, and it was a pretty tough school. <laughs> and I feel like I didn't have any help through that. Uh, I, you know, actually, I was told that financial wise, I would get help, but I didn't, so I ended up doing it myself. Um, and I remember just. That kind of ideology, it, it goes past race. It was just as an adoptee. Mm-hmm. Um, when you ask that question, I had like this pit in my stomach because mm-hmm. one of the experiences I remember the most is when we would take family photos. And that would always be very uncomfortable for me because there would be instances where my they would only want the, the biological kids in a picture. And I, it, like, I noticed it. I probably did not make it ever feel like it bothered me. Mm-hmm. But like, I remember having to fit my stomach mm-hmm. in those experiences and just wanting to break down mm-hmm. um, because I was so uncomfortable. And I, yeah, I think that when you asked that, that was like one of the first experiences I thought of. So, you know, don't do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. All your kids are all your kids. That's like, right. All good, sure. Uh, there's no reason to have photos. Just what, is it, what does that mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, what are we doing here? Like I always say about my boys, yeah, they're adopted, but that that was the method of which they became my children mm-hmm. was the legal adoption. Mm-hmm. Now they're my children. They still have birth mothers and all of those kinds of things which we celebrate, we respect. But at the end of the day, they're my kids. Mm-hmm. And I parent from that place. There shouldn't be any of this other business when you have adopted children they are your children that's what you signed up to do mm-hmm. with that said check your heart check it i'm done okay. <laughs> peace out <laughs>
And yeah. you know what I think mm-hmm. along with that, Renee, I think um, it's something we talk about in our bridge building and our racial reconciliation work, but I think it's also important as transracial adoptive parents is to humble ourselves. Mm. Um, That's and right. to just, again, realize there's so much that we don't know, that yep. we don't know, and to be open to feedback um, and help. I always say as parents, I think we, we all want to give our kids everything. We want to do everything we can for our kiddos. And it is a humbling aspect to me with transracial adoption to admit I cannot give my black children everything that they need. I need other people to come alongside of me Mm -hmm. and to help me and to pour into them. Um, My husband's white. He cannot Mm. help my two black sons navigate being a black man in our country. I need other black men. Um, But we have to be humble to say, I don't have all the answers. Mm -hmm. I can't do this alone. And be open. You know what the thing is? The, the, the thing is about that is that, yeah, that is absolutely 100% true. Like, we've had to reach out to our black friends all the time. My son's about to get his license next week. Mm-hmm. And his, <laughs> his best buddy is black. And we I texted his mom and I said, listen, can you have your husband pull my son aside? Mm-hmm. And my husband was totally on board with it. And he was texting Saul's, my son's friend's buddy. Anyway, the, the thing about this is, is with biological children, even if there was something, and I can't even think of an example, like here's one, your son plays basketball and he's really good and you're really terrible. Mm -hmm. You can't be the person to help your son get better at basketball. Mm -hmm. And so as a parent, you're going to have the wisdom to reach out to someone who can help your son be the best that he can be. Because the thing that he's good at, the thing that's great about, one of the things that's great about him is not your specialty. It's not your forte. So as white parents of black children, it's not our specialty. It's not our forte. We've never lived that experience. So why would it be so difficult? Why is it so difficult for us to say, you know what? I don't got this. Because as she said, humility plays a part and you can't. It doesn't, it doesn't take away from how much you love your child to bring someone else. Uh, if anything, it shows how much you love and care about them That's right. by bringing someone else in that can help them along the journey and help you guys. That's right. As parents, it should become, it, there should be a point where we let this become natural. Mm-hmm. We check our pride. We say, you know what, as much as I want to be the person that provides everything, I've struggled with that. I, at times I've, I've said, I wish I could be that person because I love them so much. Mm-hmm. I wish I could be that person to walk through this. Now we can supplement and add support, of course, but um, it's not my thing. It's not my thing. It takes a village. It takes a village. And so let's check our pride at the door and let's do what's best for our kiddos. That's what we signed up for, right? God calls himself a father to the fatherless. Listening to Morgan tell her story, I was reminded that adoption was never plan A. Adoption exists because of loss and heartbreak. And let's not forget that, whether we are the adoptive parents or friends of adoptive parents. And I think another really important thing, something problematic that I personally continue to see in transracial adoption is love. Love is enough. Enough. Mm. I love these kids, mm. you know, my kids. So that's enough. Mm. Nope. And it's just not. It's not. It's Mm-mm. not. Um, You know, we know that transracial adoptees have um, a very high suicide rate Mm -hmm. um, and it's 
I think one of the contributors to that is when we approach the parenting as love is enough. Mm. I love them. Um, and when we don't go beyond beyond that and like you said, checking our pride and humbling mm. ourselves. Mm. Well, it's, it's like marriage. It's two people entering, entering this relationship and we get married, this beautiful ceremony. Love is enough. Love's mm. going to get us through. And we're often young and foolish, really, honestly. And, you know, and then we get into marriage and years <laughs> down the road and all of the things and the baggage and yeah. the personalities come out. And, whoa, this mm. is reality. <laughs> this is not perfect. This is not beautiful. Right. There's nothing pretty about this. But that's that's where beauty comes from the ashes, right? Mm-hmm. Is when we realize, oh, it isn't perfect. Like it's not fairy tale. It's not Hollywood beautiful. But it's like reality beautiful. It takes work. And that's that's the way it is with parenting in general, mm-hmm. I think. But especially when we're talking about adoptive kiddos, mm-hmm. like it'd be the beauty can come from the ashes, but you can't go into it with rose colored glasses. And I think we have to realize that, you know, adoption alone, when a child, first of all, our children did not ask to be adopted. Mm-hmm. Um, and no, when a, a yep. child mm-hmm. is adopted, even just we're not talking across culture or across races, um, losing that birth family is a trauma. Mm-hmm. And then when we add the race aspect, mm-hmm. then they lose their culture and their community. That's an additional trauma. Yeah. And so we have to parent through that. It was never God's plan A adoption. Right, right. It was never God's plan A. Um, there's a lot of intentionality that comes with, that should come with parenting. Unfortunately, I mean, adoption is rooted in loss. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, the, that's, a, that's a very real thing. I think a lot of adoptees struggle with is that loss, the grieving. Um, and, and some forms of feeling abandonment. And I know even growing up, I, you can still feel lost even being with your, your new adoptive family. Mm -hmm. And so just making sure that you're able to kind of close that gap and, um, be there and support your child, I think is incredibly important. And, you know, I also want to say, because I know, um, (laughs) I don't try to be the one that brings all the negativity, I guess, to the conversation. It's real. But I, I also I know that I I was a, I, I definitely told myself that I was aware that my parents were perfect. You know, I knew that there was still a lot of growth and that needed to be there and it just even with parenting. But um, the race aspect, you know, it didn't really occur to me until later start recognizing it. But I think as I got older, and now that I'm, you know, 30, almost 31, but now I'm 30, um, I think that's what's been really difficult as an adult has been now that I've been able to have these conversations with my parents, and there's been, in my opinion, an ample opportunity to get that awareness and education, but yet we're still not there. That's when I had to be like, okay. That's what you got to work on. I got to step out. It's not my responsibility. And I feel like often as a black adoptee, maybe a trans, maybe any transracial adoption, it almost feels sometimes that the child is it's their it's their job yeah. to not only educate their parents but to validate in some way that their parents are like we like our existence and them having a black child validates so they're totally aware right mm. you know mm. um yeah. And yeah so there's 
always this like, if there's something wrong, you can tell your parents to do it better. Mm. But if you do think something's wrong, people are going to look at you like you're crazy sometimes, yeah. but they have you, like they can't be racist. Mm. You know, they adopted yeah. you. Um, and so, it, you know, just to say, I have, I had a lot of grace with my parents and I definitely, um, don't think and didn't think that they were perfect, but as an adult, I really had to kind of transition my mind and, and, and put that responsibility on them. Yes. Um, and I really encourage, you know, if there's any adoptees listening, um, to, to, to be okay with that, be okay with that. That's that it's their responsibility, it's their responsibility. to grow, not your responsibility to, to water them yeah uh, so and that's why this conversation is so important i mean we're gonna we're gonna move on but i just think about this cringeworthy moment that we've had recently with i'm gonna be very careful there was <laughs> there was someone that spoke publicly about their african-american exactly children what you're talking about. and expectations for negative things to happen to them because of their race cringeworthy. I mean, like it's, I, I don't want to really just, you know, go you don't into that say because that's, that's not what this show is about, <laughs> but these conversations are extremely important. Yeah. They don't get it. It's, they just, they just don't get it. They're missing it. So it's their responsibility to educate themselves and to learn. Like yeah. you said, it's not the responsibility of the child. I totally agree. You would never expect, you would never expect a child to educate you on something else. Like exactly. wouldn't, whatever it is, like cooking pasta, yeah. you would never expect yeah. your child to come to you or say, Hey buddy, how do I cook pasta? Like yeah. you would never ask your kid that. Yeah. So on this, on this big stuff, like it's, it, it's problematic to me that we as adoptive parents have that expectation on kids. It's not their responsibility. Well, and I always say too, if someone's going to be uncomfortable, Mm. That should be me, the adult, mm. the parent, not mm -hmm. my child. Mm -hmm. It's going to be the uncomfortable mm -hmm. one. Yeah. At the end of every episode of Two Mamas and a Mustard Seed, we're going to tell a two-minute story about a hero of civil rights. Alvin Ailey was a humanitarian known for popularizing modern dance and revolutionizing African-American involvement internationally through modern dance. The African-American activist and choreographer hit the world with his vision of greater equality through his choreographic works. The New York Times says, Ailey was someone you didn't need to have known personally to have been touched by his humanity, enthusiasm, and exuberance, and his courageous stand for multiracial brotherhood. Alvin Ailey was born in 1931, and he was raised in racially segregated Texas. There he attended Sunday school and was a part of the Baptist Young People's Union. At 11 years old, Ailey began dance training in classical, folk, and modern genres. After a year, Ailey moved to Los Angeles where he proved to be an athlete and a talented linguist as well. Ailey joined Lester Horton's dance company in 1950, the first racially integrated troupe of its kind in the United States. Modern dance was seen by Horton as a cross-cultural melting pot. Opportunities for African-American dancers were extremely sparse and Horton's model became a ray of hope during the civil rights movement. After Horton's death in 1953, Ailey became the director of the Horton Dance Theater and began to choreograph his own productions. In 1953, Ailey made his performance debut and the next year made his Broadway debut with House of Flowers by Truman Capote. 
Ailey stayed in New York, studying ballet, modern dance, and acting. Through the 1950s, Ailey performed on film and on and off Broadway as a dancer, actor, and choreographer. He founded the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater in 1958. His whole aim was dedicating his work to the enrichment of American modern dance style while keeping the uniqueness of African-American culture. With its first performance, Blue Suite in 1958, the company had immediate success. International claim for the company rapidly ensued. It was the first African-American company selected to tour Australia and Asia and President John F. Kennedy's President's Special International Program for Cultural Presentations. They toured the USSR, the first American dance company to do so in 50 years. The company's performance in 1970 in St. Petersburg received rave reviews and a 20-minute ovation. The company's extensive international touring earned it the title Cultural Ambassador to the World. Ailey's dance piece, Revelations, was performed in 1960. The story of African-American persistence and hope and the achievement of freedom from slavery. The piece had been regarded as his choreographic masterpiece and it's the best known and most performed modern dance work. Ailey transformed his company from all African-American to multicultural in 1962 to reflect his vision of equality. In 1969, Ailey established a dance school that evolved to the Alvin Ailey American Dance Center in New York. He received a multitude of honors, such as the Spring Guard Medal of the NAACP, the Kennedy Center Honor for a Lifetime Contribution to American Culture through the Performing Arts, and several honorary doctorates. Ailey's unprecedented achievements through his work that integrated diverse races and creeds conveyed the rich and unique qualities of African-American culture. They have permanently and deeply influenced American art and culture and helped encourage greater respect for freedoms and essential human rights for every person. Alvin Ailey died in 1989, but the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater continues to be one of the most popular dance companies in the world. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Two Mamas and a Mustard Seed. And a big thank you to today's guests, Morgan Rumpel and Amanda McMonagle. Until our next episode, please remember to be humble, be kind, be a good listener, and be courageous. Two Mamas and a Mustard Seed is written and produced by Kisa Hulke and myself. Music is licensed through musicbed.com. Learn more about us, hear more episodes, and send us your questions and comments at two mamas and a mustard seed.